Before we were going out to celebrate the 8 o'clock Mass, Father Emerson told me that in the old prayer book, this was Sexagesima Sunday. Aren't you glad I don't have to do all that explaining? <laughs> right? Septuagesima, Sexagesima, Quinquisagesima. It was this little season called pre-Lent, as if six weeks were not long enough. I don't intend to preach on the gospel, but merely to say that uh, this story uh, takes place in Peter's house, mother's house in Capernaum, and one of the the most important archaeological discoveries in the last 30 years uh, is that house. And uh, the the, uh, consensus among archaeologists now is that it is, in fact, uh, Peter's house in Capernaum. And uh, this is uh, widely held even by the most skeptical, not interested in Christianity group of archaeologists. They have said, yes, this is Peter's house. And so what takes place in the story was a place. What I want to preach on today is, and some of you are going to say, why? But I want to say some things about St. Paul. Because for the last few weeks, we've been reading uh, from 1 Corinthians. So I want to say something about Paul's outlook and why he's very important to Christianity, obviously. There are those who believe that we have Christianity today because of St. Paul. That is not true. And one of the problems is is that since the Reformation, uh, Paul's writings have had the lead with regard to the theological outlook of Reformed theology, and the Gospels are often very much neglected. So I want to say something, though, first about understanding the meaning and purpose of religion. Uh, Those of us who are Americans uh, know, if we've studied any American history, that uh, many of the founding fathers of this country were Episcopalians, as a matter of fact, but they were Episcopalians of the deist variety, which means that they believed that God made the cosmos like a watch, and he wound the watch, and he set the watch ticking and is out of the picture now, right? That gave a lot of people permission with that view to be able to do some things that are important, even if they misconstrued or misunderstood it, which is science and a lot of other things which uh, permit uh, people to find out and to know about the way the world works. But religion is something that doesn't really have a lot to do uh, with that. The founding fathers also said, here's the reason religion is important. It serves as a force of moral regulation in society. If you practice your religion or a religion, it's going to keep you in some way on the even keel with regard to your behavior. So religion and moral and ethical behavior got tied together uh, very soon. But here's the thing. Christianity is a religion that is not based on a book. It is not based on a particular set of moral and ethical principles. It is not based on a particular set of liturgical formularies. Christianity is a religion based in a person, Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
And by virtue of that, we understand something as we seek to be faithful to his words and works, both through the sacred scriptures and also through the tradition of the church with a capital T, that we understand something about who we are and what we must do. And so as I continue to talk to you about Paul, we need to keep that idea of religion and how we might understand it in mind. How we apply our reason, experience, and the Bible to uh, knowing who we are and what we ought to do. One of the cornerstones of Reformation theology, and is, is described today to some degree in the reading that I'll talk about in a minute, uh, is something known as the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Luther, uh, because of his own internal demons and his worrying about whether or not he was saved or God was present to him in any way, he began to read the Bible from the standpoint of saying, how will I be able to rid myself of this obsession that uh, no matter what I do, I don't feel like God's presence uh, is in me in, in the right way. So he began to read the Bible and he gets to Romans where it says we're justified by grace through faith. Paul says this. And he said, that's it. That's the answer. So now I'm going to embark on an overly abstruse description of how we under, should understand what this means. Some say this is the doctrine upon which Reformed theology stands or falls. When you read Romans or you read Galatians or you read Ephesians, and you see in there this reference to being justified by faith. What it really means is a very tiny moment in the spiritual pilgrimage of the, of the human soul who comes to, after hearing this message about the saving work of Christ, over and over again, maybe not paying much attention to it at all, but hearing it over and over again, you come to believe it, as it says in John's Gospel. You come to believe it, and at that moment, that short moment, you are now justified. It's like in a court of law, when the judge acquits you, Now, you know, in our courts, when somebody's acquitted, it has nothing to do with their moral character. Nothing. And that's what Paul means in this particular case. So as he came to believe this and felt himself justified, what he realized was there's something else that has to occur. And that is the teaching and the learning that I received from the Savior by virtue of the tradition and by virtue of the biblical witness I realize now that I am participating in the works of Christ. I am an ambassador for Christ, Jesus making his appeal through me. And so we understand in some way that this participation in Christ goes hand in glove with justification by grace through faith. So the situation on the ground today in Corinth is this. 
There have been some people who have come into the Corinthian church in Paul's absence, and they have said to the Corinthian Christians, don't pay any attention to what Paul has told you. This is what the true, the true understanding of Christianity is. And so Paul, and more to the point, they took money from the Corinthian church while they were there, you know, as, as support. Paul is saying today in 1 Corinthians, I was among you and I took no money, even though I could have, and maybe even should have. But he's setting himself over against these uh, false teachers that came into the Corinthian church. And so he's beginning to build his case for how we understand the nature of participation in Christ. But you know, all of us bring our history with us. And while Paul understood himself now not to be bound to the law, or for that matter bound to anything, he had a fairly conventional Jewish understanding of how somebody ought to behave. And so when he looked at the behavior of the Gentile world that he understood himself to be an apostle to, he was horrified by some of their behavior. And he was concerned about two areas. I mean, like they, they haven't ever gone away. Uh, sexual mores and idolatry. So he seems to uh, have, uh, you know, a flea in his ear about these issues, and they're very important to him because he was a Jewish Christian and he was a rabbi, and he understood what they said about certain kinds of things. A lot of the lists Paul quotes in all of his writings about what you should do and what you should avoid do not come uniquely from him, or for that matter, the Christian church, they come from the practical, conventional wisdom of the age, both Jewish and Gentile. When I was in seminary, the, the German biblical scholars were regnant, and they're not so much these days, thank heavens. But they called this stuff a haustafel, which meant a list, like you put on your refrigerator, don't forget the half and half. Right? So the same thing was true. Avoid fornication. Okay. So those are where these things come from. And Paul found that he didn't understand himself enough to know, like all of us, we're creatures of, of the culture that we we're part of. And we do things even though we think they're unique to us or we haven't ever really paid any attention and done any thinking about why I have this outlook or why I do what I do. The members of Paul's churches, through the practical consequences of Paul's own theology, in a way thought through the practical consequences of Paul's own theology in a way different than his. Since he believed his own behavior resulted from the Spirit of God which dwelt within him, if the converts had that same spirit, he thought their behavior should be like this, this like his, and his behavior was, on the whole, Jewish. I watched this YouTube video with Alan Jones 
uh, more than once. And he said, you know what we struggle with in the life of the church? And in fact, in all the great faith traditions, is learning the difference between principles and preferences. Right? I began my ministry in Tucson, Arizona, and the rector there was an opera lover. And he said, the best operas were written by Giuseppe Verdi, period. And it was announced like a principle. Instead of a preference. So the reason I'm saying all of this is that some people who struggle with the changes that have gone on in Christianity and in uh, some of the churches that um, are uh, sort of centrist in their views about uh, the faith and belief of Christianity have understood that some of these changes have something to do with the pastoral experience of the church. And what that means, of course, is that as you live the lived life of Christian people, lead us to understand something about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. One of the privileges a pastor has is that if they've been doing it for any length of time, they've heard a lot of stories. They've heard a lot of people's stories about themselves. And about what they've been through. And sometimes some of these people have uh, been people who in traditional terms were considered out. And the church in its pastoral wisdom has come to the conclusion, no, not in, not out. We're all in. And that's what Paul believed. Paul believed that once you accepted Christ... As your Savior, Jesus Christ, you're in. No arguing about whether or not you keep the law or you do any of that. You're in. We're all in. So that means if we're all in, we've got to learn how to coexist together. We've got to learn something about how we live as a people and what kind of an example we set uh, for others in the world, you know? One of the things that uh, is always uh, nice to hear, it's, you don't hear it very often, is somebody who has come to church or come and know people who are members of St. Luke's Church and they say to themselves, I want what you have. I want what you have. How do I get that? What do I do? What's the path? that I have to get on in order to move in that direction. So Paul, I think, is somewhat humanized by understanding that that's what he is moving toward. And that's what he's urging on the churches that he founded and wrote letters to, that we do that kind of thing. The lists are of secondary importance. Some people just find that very hard to take. They just don't know, well, when, what are we going to do? You know, I told you a few weeks ago, I watched this, this thing on YouTube about the King James only people and the, who believe, some of them, that if you uh, are a Russian 
You need to learn English in order to read the King James Bible because that's the true word of God. And, for the, more to the point, they don't believe you need to consult the Hebrew or the Greek or the uh, Aramaic texts at all about any of this. So one of the people on this panel looked at somebody who's in the King James Only School and said, well, let's take this another way. Do you use an English dictionary? Occasionally. Well, which one do you prefer? Well, there are a lot of them. You'd have to sort of find out. Some people like Webster's 1828, but that was written, you know, 200 and some odd years after the King James Version. And he said, well, here's the problem that I ran into. Over 250 words in the King James Version don't mean the same thing that they mean today. Shambles means marketplace in 1611, right? You and I don't use the word shambles that way any longer. So he said, well, gee, I mean, if you look stuff up in the dictionary and these words change their meaning, what are you going to do? And uh, Dan Wallace says, you should have thought about that a long time ago, <laughs> right? So, so don't we all have to do that in some way? As new things come to us and we begin to understand how do we uh, interpret and make it useful? How do you become all things to all people? How do you understand that that's not an affirmation of hypocrisy? It's an affirmation of learning how to be intelligible to people in some way. So this week, think about being justified by grace through faith. And thank God for the great privilege of being able to participate in the mighty works of Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual growth and progress. That's what we celebrate at St. Luke's Church. That's one of the things that I certainly stand for and have the whole time I've been here, that that's something that we ought to labor to do. It's easier to say and harder to do but that should be the goal. Amen. Amen.